From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Should the younger suspect in the STEM school Highlands Ranch shooting be charged as an adult? And what goes into that decision? Then Colorado Senate Minority Leader Chris Holbert on Republican strategies, including reading entire bills. The Constitution does allow the minority this tool. The goal was, please talk with us. Plus, his hopes for 2020. And what do you think causes teens the most anxiety? Surveys and our own reporting for the series Teens Under Stress find it's school. A lot of stress over grades, over what classes you're taking, overloading yourself with classes so that you look like the ideal candidate. Today, CPR's education reporter Jenny Brundine shares what she's learned about academic anxiety, talking with young people, educators, and brain experts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Should the younger suspect in the STEM school Highlands Ranch shooting be charged as an adult? That's when a judge may decide this week. The suspect, Alec McKinney, faces 43 felony counts, including first-degree murder, in the shooting last May. Nine students were shot. One of them died. CPR's Allison Sherry has been inside the courtroom for days. She joins us now. Hi, Allison. Good morning, Avery. There are two suspects, the younger one was 16 at the time of the shooting. Why does this matter so much whether the younger suspect is charged as an adult or as a juvenile? Well, it's pretty simple because whether these two kids did this isn't hugely in dispute. Um, You know, they're still alleged. They have not been convicted of anything. But there are police interviews. There's surveillance videos. There are Snapchats where they say things like, we have this all planned out and go now before they stormed the classroom um, where they opened fire. So I think with at least Alec McKinney, who, as you mentioned, was 16 at the time of the shooting, We'll really know a lot more about his fate when we figure out whether he faces those 43 felony charges as an adult or as a juvenile. The stakes are really high for him. Fill us in quickly about what we know about the shooting right now. So the basic details. um, May 7th, Highlands Ranch, two classmates, teenagers at the Highlands Ranch STEM school, walked into a classroom, a British classroom. They were watching... um, a a video at the time was the last week of school, and opened fire. Nine kids were shot. Uh, One student, Kendrick Castillo, died. Um, And both suspects were arrested right on the spot in the school. McKinney had bullets falling out of his sweatpants in 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 the police surveillance videos. His friend, Devin Erickson, who was 18 at the time, was also arrested. Um, And he's being tried as an adult, and he faces those same 43 felony charges. Have investigators determined which suspect shot which students, and is that significant? I mean, it will be significant if and and when this goes to trial, but we don't know that yet. Um, The FBI has to do ballistics, and they haven't finished that investigation. We do know nine kids were shot. We know Castillo has died. Um, But I guess for the purposes of a preliminary hearing legally, all that matters is, is that there's enough probable cause to charge these two people with 43 three felony counts. And for this case, uh, the judges have decided that for both suspects there is. How did the prosecution make the case that McKinney should be tried or charged as an adult? Uh, So in the days of testimony that's still continuing at this hour, actually, it's going on right now, um, it it was all boiled down to sort of two things. One, the prosecution talked about the horrific nature of this crime. And two, they talked about how juvenile detention is quite a bit easier than adult detention. And in what way is that different? Well, I mean, 
The vast majority of juveniles are serving much shorter sentences for much lesser crimes. For a juvenile to serve more than even 18 months is unusual. Um, and in juvenile detention, there are more opportunities for counseling, rehabilitation. They're taught trades. They're in school. They're in some therapy there. You know, depending on where you are, there are canteens and televisions. And through witness testimony, prosecutors um, led by Arapahoe County DA George Brockler painted a very different picture um, than an adult prison where people are serving time for felony one murders. One woman actually testified that there's never been a mass shooter in juvenile detention in Colorado history. But what about the defense? What did McKinney's lawyers say? Well, the defense's take um, sort of boiled down is that McKinney had a terrible life. You know, his mother was negligent. His dad was abusive towards his mom, often in front of the kids. There were drugs in the house. His dad was actually a coyote and a drug mule who was deported in 2010 back to Mexico. Um, McKinney has been cutting himself since his preteen years. And, you know, he just had had a lot of signs that he was like reaching out for a cry for help. And there wasn't a consistent adult in his life paying attention to him. How did they make this case? Well, one of the more dramatic moments was almost the almost entire day that defense attorneys put McKinney's mother on the stand, who basically just tearfully talked about her bad parenting for hours. She she cried a lot, talked about cocaine use, missing medical appointments for McKinney, um, saying she noticed he was engaging in self-destructive behavior but didn't treat it with the urgency that she should have. And during that time, McKinney's whole family was sitting in two or three rows in the right behind the defense table, and they were crying. The defendant himself was crying. It was quite emotional. What do prosecute What do prosecutors say about the bad parenting? Well, I mean, they they say she wasn't a model mother. That she often put herself first. She actually traveled with the kids back to Mexico after abusive dad was deported to visit him, but that. Ultimately, she did love Alec and that he also was living with his grandparents through some of the, some of his teen years and that he had other adults in his life, grandparents, aunts, that sort of thing, who cared about him, too. They also brought up um, a couple of STEM teachers, a guidance counselor, both of whom said they really cared for Alec. They tried to get him help. So prosecutors point was there were a lot of adults in this world who loved him and maybe his mom wasn't ideal, but that, you know, Ultimately, he did have some support. Now, Alec is biologically a female, right? And he's transgender. Right. Did that play a role into his difficult childhood? Again, that kind of depends on who you ask. Defense lawyers say he faced bullying at schools. His family wasn't super supportive at first. But prosecutors point out that his mother actually threw him a coming out party when he was 15, that she attended counseling sessions with him, that she went by his preferred pronoun. Um, And this whole notion of bullying, at least at the STEM school, is a bit up in the air because no one has testified that they knew about bullying at STEM. He never... Alec, if he was being bullied, never told a counselor, he never told a therapist, he never told a teacher. So he was completely silent about it if it was happening. And the counselors and therapists did actually testify that McKinney suffered some forms of trauma and was diagnosed with an adjustment disorder. But this was back when he was a kid, not not in the last couple of years. So how is the judge going to decide all this? Well, You know, legally, the judge has to weigh the seriousness of the alleged crime against the defendant's age and level of maturity, along with his upbringing. And closing arguments are scheduled for tomorrow. I don't know how the snow is going to affect that, but they're scheduled for tomorrow. And the judge could make a bench ruling, um, which means right then and there he'll say what he's going to do, or he could issue a written ruling in the future. It's completely up to him. Allison, thanks for the update. Thanks, Avery. 
Allison Sherry is CPR's justice reporter. She's been covering the preliminary hearing and reverse transfer hearing for the juvenile suspect in the school shooting at STEM Academy Highlands Ranch. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. When Republicans began the year in the minority in both the Colorado House and Senate, as well as the governor's office, the thinking was they'd be helpless to prevent Democrats from enacting whatever agenda they wanted in the state legislature. But the state's GOP said, not so fast, literally. Senator Cook. Uh, Thank you, Mr. Chair. I also move House Bill 1172 and ask that it be read at length. I object to the motion and ask that the journal be read at length. So I respectfully request that Senate Bill 99 be read at length. Using a provision in the state constitution, Republicans were able to put the brakes on the Democratic majority's legislative timetable by having bills read in their entirety. So what are the GOP's plans for 2020, which is shaping up to be a historic year politically? Chris Holbert of Parker is the Senate Minority Leader. Senator Holbert, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Let's talk about that bill reading that we referred to. What's the strategy in reading a bill in its entirety? The one process that we have by our Constitution to slow things down would be to have bills read. I think I think the total number of times we did that, our total number of bills last year was 14 out of hundreds. So... And I think one of those bills was 2,000 pages long. (laughs) Is that a strategy that your caucus is planning on using again in 2020 with the numbers as they stand with Democrats and Republicans? Sure. Possibly. Uh, The 2,000-page bill, I think, was actually 2,023 pages, and it was a non-controversial bill. It's really an opportunity for us to sit down and for them to ask, what, what is it that you want? The goal was not to spend 41 hours listening to that bill read. The goal was, please talk with us. Please negotiate. This is this is an important policy uh, in this in this next bill. Um, and we we want to talk. It really gives Senate President Garcia credit uh, over the summer. There's a lot of discussion about maybe a special session. The governor was talking with uh, different legislators and there was a lot of discussion, different topic. And um, President Garcia called and we had a very cordial conversation. I think the evening of July 2nd, he was in his backyard in Pueblo drinking a beer and grilling dinner for his family. And I was in the backyard of my house in Douglas County drinking a beer and grilling dinner for my family. And that's really, uh, I, I think, the objective of such tactics is is not to uh, expend, you know, hours and hours or the most I've seen, 41 hours. Um, that, that's not the objective. The objective is uh, to remind the majority that the, the Constitution does allow the minority this tool. We can't shut down the process by denying quorum like happens in other states. But this one tool we have, the Constitution says every bill has to be read, and if we want it to be, It has to be. Let's move to Proposition CC. Voters rejected it earlier this month. It would have allowed the state to keep refunds that go to taxpayers under Tabor, the Taxpayers Bill of Rights. In our regular interview with Governor Jared Polis, he said voters want government, as in the state legislatures and its office, to be creative in finding a solution to Colorado's transportation issues. We'll ask you the same question we asked him. What's your best idea? My best idea is the same as it has been. Our general fund, our total budget in Colorado has grown enormously. And people who oppose Tabor try to represent that it hasn't. I think within our increasing budget, we we should allocate more of our existing revenue stream to roads and bridges or transportation in general. 
when we look at the legislature and our authority over things like transportation, I love to offer this historical little tidbit and just ask you and the listeners, when do you think the last time the General Assembly in Colorado voted to approve a specific road or bridge project? And I'll do the Jeopardy theme in my head. It was in 1899. The legislature approved a mining road. It was a wagon road between Leadville and Pueblo, and it was built by convicts. For about the past four years, uh, Senate Republicans have been calling for, standing for, demanding at least $300 million of general fund revenue go to roads and bridges. That's not all the revenue. Colorado collects state gas tax, and we also have federal gas tax. So every time you fill up your tank, you're paying state and federal gas tax. But that doesn't go into the general fund, and we don't allocate it in our budget. That goes into the Highway User Tax Fund, and the Colorado Department of Transportation controls some of that, and then counties and municipalities control some of that without coming to us for approval on how they use it. And I want to get into education, because another thing that Polis mentioned in the wake of that defeat, he was hoping that the Joint Budget Committee and legislature would agree to increase the size of the state reserve and the state education fund. And that would in part be a way of making sure that there were enough funds to cover a rainy day. What are your thoughts? Well, the the reserve fund is very important, and I, I agree with the governor that increasing that is in the best interests of Colorado. I've lived here on and off since 1961. I was six months old when my parents moved from Omaha, Nebraska to Glenwood Springs, um, and I've lived in Colorado more than any other state. Um, I'm 58 now, and, and I love to call Colorado home. But in Colorado, because of Tabor and our limited ability to generate new dollars, it's really important that we respect the the history of Colorado. And even before I moved here, long before that, in the 1890s, we had this thing called the gold rush. And we've had bust and boom cycles in Colorado. The first time that I experienced that, my wife and I bought our first house in Southeast Denver, a townhouse in 1987. And then we experienced an oil and gas bust. And about half of our development went into foreclosure. And then we saw that again in the 2007, 8, 9 uh, time period, another recession hit Colorado. So when we look at our history, we have to be prepared for that boom and bust. And right now it's a very robust economy and things are going well. Our budget is growing. But what happens when the next recession happens, assuming and with strong likelihood that at some point it will, How do we keep paying our bills? And that's what the reserve account is for the state of Colorado. It isn't really so much of a rainy day fund. I guess you could describe it that way, but it would allow the state of Colorado for a number of weeks or possibly months to keep paying its bills. So you don't necessarily see it as a protection for education then? Not the reserve account, but the education fund, uh, I believe that's what the, the other part that the governor had referred to, uh, is is a reserve account for education purposes, specifically K through 12. Um, so that's another complicated equation in Colorado. The Colorado Teacher Association, it's the largest teachers union in the state. It said recently that its members would consider participating in walkouts if the state does not significantly increase education funding and teacher pay. What kind of pressure does that add to the equation when it comes to splitting a pie with multiple entities wanting their piece? I've been in the legislature um, since 2011. And other than that year, we have increased education funding for K through 12. 
Only the one year when we were coming out of the recession did that not happen. So we meet the, first, the, the one goal that you mentioned, and the other one doesn't apply to the state legislature, and that's salaries. Our state legislature couldn't set teacher salaries on a statewide basis because school boards have that authority. And if we tried, I'm pretty sure most, if maybe all of them, would come and say, no, you can't do that. Um, so we can increase funding. We have um, and, and I'm sure that, that, uh, under the governor's proposal and then what, whatever the joint budget committee submits to the legislature is the legislature's budget. Uh, I'm, I'm confident for 2020 that there'll be another increase for K through 12. I also wonder, are you open to changes with any gun laws? Cause that's been in the news quite a bit lately. I wonder, say safe areas for storage. Well, safe storage laws are interesting. I'm, I'm, my wife and I have firearms in our house, and we have two grown sons. But as they were growing, that became something that we were certainly aware of and uh, took action to make sure that our sons, when they were young, couldn't get access to that. We can afford to do that. Um, I think gun storage is something that maybe people who aren't familiar with guns and gun storage alternatives may say, say, gosh, that sounds like a good idea. Okay, well, how much? Um, is it something that we're, we're going to require every gun owner to have a safe that can withstand like a house fire for 30 or 45 minutes? Because those are about 500 to to $1,000 kind of minimum. Is it a metal box with a lock on it? Could it be a wood box with a lock on it? So if we had a safe storage law, uh, is, is the idea that a parent or a gun owner who takes some effort to lock up firearms and make them not accessible, would that then become an affirmative defense for those people? Or would it depend on how safe the safe is and some measure of liability? Um, I, I, I don't understand what the proposed solution would be. I haven't seen a bill. So I'm, I'm skeptical. This past summer, there were a number of recall efforts pushed against a number of Democrats ranging from the Governor Polis to members of the state Senate. All of them failed to even get off the ground. What are your thoughts about using recalls as a means of removing elected officials from office? I think it's important for me to disclose that I didn't have any involvement. I, I didn't lend my name. I didn't devote time. I didn't advocate for I didn't, uh, as, as the leader of my caucus, I didn't allocate any resources to any of those. And the reason I didn't is I'm not trying to recall myself or my state representative, Kim Ransom, and I'm, those are the only two legislators who I could recall. Um, and I think that's very important because all of them failed. And in my mind, based on our state constitution, which gives the people the right to recall. And when it comes to legislative districts, that means the people who live in those districts and who are registered to vote in those districts, they all failed. So if a listener out there says, well, I didn't like any of the recalls or I didn't like some of the recalls, okay, they all failed. Didn't it work out maybe the way that you would want it to? Um, so when we look at proposed changes, I don't support changes that would change the Constitution, because that means we would be proposing a change that would take power away from the people, not political uh, leaders like me. It would take power away from the people. And I, I think that people generally would say, no, they wouldn't want to do that. 
What I understand is that Senator Jack Tate, uh, who is in my caucus, a uh, Republican in the, senator, uh, in the Senate, uh, that Senator Tate is looking at statutory changes. So that wouldn't change the Constitution. The people would still have the right to recall. But I understand that uh, Jack is looking at things like, could it take place during a legislative session? Oh, okay. That, that's an interesting question. Um, should it be limited to malfeasance, uh, something? I, that's an interesting conversation. But even at a statutory level, I'm a little leery of that because ultimately right now it's up to the people. And I think it should stay that way. As we said, Democrats, they took control of the Colorado legislature after the 2018 elections, and that's a result that some even within the GOP attribute to dissatisfaction with President Trump. Now we're on to 2020. As we speak, of course, the impeachment inquiry is going on in Washington. Beside the presidential race, Colorado Republican Senator Cory Gardner is expected to be in a heated race for re-election. What are the challenges for the party this next session leading into a big presidential year? Well, the presidential election cycles every four years are fascinating. Uh, My understanding is there are about 360,000 registered voters in Colorado who voted in 2016 and who did not vote in 2018. Um, We certainly are looking forward to uh, to 2020 because we are counting on a lot of those 360,000 people to come out and vote and probably answer the traditional question of, are you better off today than you were three years ago or next year, four years ago? And a lot of people are answering yes. Um, So it'll be fascinating to see how how the president being on the ballot affects voter turnout and um, voter sentiment in Colorado. Uh, Certainly, Senator Gardner, um, uh, I think it was a surprise for some people when he upset uh, uh, incumbent Mark Udall, um, and now he's the incumbent. It sounds like one of your main concerns then is voter turnout. Are there specific ways that you're hoping to see the GOP motivate voters to come out and vote? Well, I'm not here to represent the GOP. I'm, I'm not here for the state party or the RNC. I'm the leader of the Senate Republican Caucus, uh, right now 16. Uh, my first goal for 2020 is don't go below 16, don't go backwards. And uh, second goal would be to see if we can get back to 17 uh, or even 18. That would ultimately, the third goal would be to win two seats. 18 is the determination of majority. That's a simple majority of 35. I was in the Senate for four years where we had 18 and got to serve in the majority. And I'd very much like to spend my last two years in the legislature because of term limits uh, being back in the majority. I'd love to be the majority leader of the Senate again. It's a fascinating job. And I've been told by some that I did it well. And I'd like to try that again. But uh, we'll see. Senator Holbert, thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. Thank you. Anytime. Republican Chris Holbert is the minority leader in the Colorado Senate. He joined us to discuss how his party is approaching 2020 and what the GOP hopes to accomplish locally in the upcoming legislative session. When we come back, our special project, Teens Under Stress, and how academic anxiety is taking a toll. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. CPR's active community of support has allowed CPR News to increase coverage of our state, CPR Classical to reach more of Colorado, and Indy 1023 to deliver the best in new and local music. Thank you. 
The pressure to excel in school is taking an enormous toll on teenagers. When CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine began investigating rising rates of anxiety and depression among teens, school came up over and over again. She explores that in the next chapter of our series, Teens Under Stress. She spoke with my colleague, Ryan Warner. We're going to be rolling out a bunch of profiles of teens and how school affects them mentally. Uh, But first off, how did you decide to focus on schools? Academic stress is named as the number one stressor in teens' lives in studies and surveys. Also, in dozens of our interviews with teens, it usually came up as the top reason for anxiety and depression. Okay, we, any of us who went to some sort of schooling, understand that there's pressure. But what what is it that teens deal with today? Yeah, we'll get into that and you'll hear it in some of their voices. It is pretty high pressure. Toxic. It's toxic. A lot of stress over grades, over what classes you're taking, overloading yourself with classes so that you look like the ideal candidate. I've talked to a lot of kids in recent months, and some describe how they compulsively check grades online several times a day to see how each test score has changed their GPA, their grade point average. They tend to see one failure as derailing their whole future. I would feel like I wasn't going to do as well as I needed to do on a final to keep my A in a class, and my brain would go straight to I'm not getting into college. If I get to be in this one class, I'm not going to get into any university ever. I'm not going to find a job. I'm going to be homeless. Like, I've heard so many people just go, I'm going to be homeless. And because kids are so focused on GPA, it means that some students actually don't take the classes they're interested in. Instead, they take harder, advanced classes that boost their GPA. And some kids compete to land in the school's top 10. That's where the big scholarships kick in to get into college. But nowadays, so many kids are scoring perfect grades. You hit a threshold for these like Ivy League schools and for the similarly ranked schools You hit a threshold where you can't be any better academically and you need to differentiate yourself another way. And that's where we get kids going all out from 630 in the morning till midnight sometimes on extracurricular activities and volunteer work. I just feel so overwhelmed. I'm a junior and I'm juggling a million different things and I feel like I have to take so many AP classes to define myself as successful. And there's all these people who are succeeding so much. There's all this pressure to like... Just beat them, yeah. Like, almost every day I'd come home with four to five hours of homework, just a block, you know, and after a while I just kind of stopped doing it, not because I didn't feel it was necessary, but because it was eating up so much time of my normal life. I don't know, I really like high school, but it's a lot. It's a lot on your plate all the time. Getting up at 6.30 in the morning is not good when you're getting, like, four hours of sleep because you have eight hours of homework when you get home. It's a lot. It's so fast-paced and it's just so constant. Jenny, just to harken back to something we heard, I remember when they would post grades uh, when I was in high school. I can't fathom what it would be like to keep going back to a website or some sort of app where I could keep checking. I mean, oh, yeah. That would that would drive me crazy, the refreshing. The online, yes. Yeah. It's all, always in your pocket. Okay. Um, when you are so exhausted, obviously you are more prone to anxiety and depression. So where is the pressure coming from? Could you kind of pinpoint its origin? Uh, It can come from parents, teachers, and counselors, but also from the culture at large. And then a lot of teens are telling me they start generating the stress themselves. Denver Public School psychologist Susan Stein-Chevelle describes it like this. 
There's concern about getting into the schools that parents are wanting kids to get into. They talk to one another. They compare themselves to one another in social media. They're watching what their peers are doing, who's getting accepted, who got their letters. I didn't get mine yet. There's anguish over that. And will I get into a school that my peers are getting into? Will it look as prestigious? And then we have kids who are really very happy to be going to wherever they get to go, which is great. And for some students, the need to put food on the table and help out at home sometimes leaves them unable to put in the time and effort needed to do well in school. That compounds stress. Like every day after school, I'll have to like go to work, and then I hardly have any time to get my schoolwork done. And that like gets me like really pressured to make sure like all my assignments are on time. So. That's almost like juggling school and a livelihood. Um, Jenny, how do we know it's worse than it used to be. I mean, how is this different from what adults might remember from their school days? Well, listeners can look forward to a story that explains exactly how we got here. But briefly, there's a lot more testing and a much narrower definition of what's considered success. A pair of boys told me the attitude is that a four-year degree is the only path to success. All of your youth has been leading up to that one very moment. It's been beaten into us and ingrained in our minds that college is the only way to be it's successful. It's like the only option it's to succeed in life option. is college. It, and that's it. Are you guys kind of mad about this as we oh, yeah. keep talking about it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If it was up to me, I wouldn't want to go to college but because I'm not the greatest student. But like, I feel like society is just set up to where like you have to go to college or you're going to fail life. And on top of that, there's the overwhelming cost of college weighing on kids. Okay, how are students reacting to all that pressure then? It's really tough for them, particularly because the adolescent brain is still developing prospection. That's the ability to envision oneself in the future. Uh CU Boulder clinical psychologist and researcher Rosalind Kaiser says in her clinical interviews, teens say academic stressors are one of their number one sources of anxiety. You can imagine if one negative event feels that it will end everything for you. How much is hanging on every single milestone that you're trying to encounter? If you can't imagine a life after failing this test, then of course you're going to be incredibly anxious about the test itself. Oh, Jenny, this is an aha moment for me, just as as someone who has covered teen suicide, right? If you don't have a good view of what the future is, everything seems bleak. And this goes back to the idea of those kids who are like, oh, I, I didn't do well. The alternative is I'm homeless, I'm on the streets. Yes, sort of a black and white view. Okay, there's this worry that this check the box or build a resume education culture is killing intrinsic motivation in kids, you know, their own desire to do well, uh, and fueling anxiety and depression, huh? Yeah, Nicholas Thompson, he's a clinical social worker in Boulder, and he talks a lot about this. He says it's not just affecting these overachievers, but kids who may not have the academic skills for them, rather than coming up short, they adopt this persona that, you know, school doesn't matter, I don't care, and then they slowly withdraw. Thompson says kids are anxious because they begin seeing their self-worth based on test scores. And he says the consequences are dire. If it's GPA, they lose the love of learning in a school setting. If it's about getting an athletic scholarship, they lose the love of athletics and liking to exercise and, and belonging to a team. If it's about getting enough hours for your IB program, so you check the box for volunteering. They're losing the love of volunteering when they're 17. 
And so no matter how you design these things, if they continue to be about outcomes and they're graded and we put the stakes so high for these selected outcomes, no doubt our kids will lose the love of the process, whatever it is. So essentially his argument is if we're killing any intrinsic motivation in kids, when that happens, you're not going to be very happy. Right. And you won't have a passion for whatever it is, be it school or otherwise. Your reporting, Jenny Brundine, has found that this is changing teens' behavior. School counselors and researchers are seeing this rise in school refusal or kids staying home from school. Yes, more than one in four kids will refuse to go to school at some point in their lives. And this cuts across age, gender, race, and socioeconomic status. Kids who have underlying anxiety and depression are at particularly high risk. Pamela Vaughn is a trauma social worker in Denver schools. She describes what's going on in the minds of depressed or anxious kids. In their mind is they've missed so much school. They've missed so much content that they feel hopeless when they walk into a room. It's almost like a little sixth grader coming into our school for the first time on the first day of school, and they walk into this classroom. They don't know any of the students because they've been gone so long. They don't know any of the content, so they just give up. Then it creates a vicious cycle, and that causes more stress as they begin to fail. They believe that their hole is so deep that they can't come out of it. Yeah, I see the vicious cycle. Okay, Jenny, what about the general structure of school? Like, is there a way that schools can help kids with these issues? Well, yeah, a lot of kids are functioning, you know, quite well in the current system, and those tend to be the rule followers. Mm. But I hear one comment from a lot of kids, and here a high school teacher, John Dixon, sums it up. He's one of those teachers that kids open up to. He says one problem is that sometimes students are treated like a number. They're expected to almost be robots. You know, you have to act a certain way. You have to be at a certain time. You have to go certain places when that bell rings. You eat when you're told to eat. You have to raise your hand to go to the bathroom. And that's not the whole child approach that we need to be taking. It it, it doesn't take into account any of the context of them as a, a flesh and blood human being, especially when teachers look at students like, well, where's your work? Give me your work when there could be a lot of reasons in life that a kid isn't handing in work. Just to harken back to something we heard earlier from the young man who said, you know, I I feel like I have no other option besides college. I know that that's a message that's beginning to change, but it, it doesn't seem like it's reached kids necessarily. That's exactly right, Ryan. It's funny because there are many schools that are doing more technical classes, things like this, but it is incredible the number of kids I talk to who aren't hearing about that. And some people say we have an entire generation of counselors that was educated Uh under this, you know, you got to go to college, you got to go to college. So it's difficult to see exactly where that link is. But um, a lot of kids that aren't headed to college do feel pretty worthless in school. Gosh. Uh, You and the team, Jenny, will have lots more stories on academic stress just after the Thanksgiving break. Yes, indeed. Thanks so much. Thank you. Ryan Warner speaking with CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine, who's on our Teens Under Stress team. Find all the coverage at CPR.org slash teens. He may be best known for directing Star Wars The Last Jedi, but that may change Wednesday. That's when the star-studded whodunit Knives Out hits theaters nationwide. 
Are you baiting me, detective? Attempting to be thorough so we can figure out the manner of death. You mean if someone killed him? <laughs> you think one of us, one of his family, Walt, Walt. killed him? Mr. Blanc, I just buried my father who committed suicide. Why are you here? I suspect... Writer, director, producer Ryan Johnson grew up in Denver. He spoke with my colleague Ryan Warner when Knives Out opened at the Denver Film Festival. In this film, Knives Out, a celebrated crime novelist is found dead following his 85th birthday. It's initially thought to be a suicide, but something's fishy, and everyone, especially members of the author's dysfunctional family, becomes a suspect. (laughs) You seem to have a penchant for mysteries. I mean, with early films like Brick and your sci-fi mystery Looper. I understand you were a big murder mystery fan as a kid, particularly Agatha Christie. Yeah, I mean, that's where this one comes from. This is straight Christie. I mean, it's an original story. It's modern day. It has kind of a modern twist on it. But the heart of it is I love a good whodunit, a good traditional whodunit. And the whole idea was, you know what? Let's get an all-star cast together. Let's make it PG-13 so the whole family can come and let's make the kind of whodunit that, that when I was a kid I grew up watching. What does it mean that it's pure Agatha Christie? Like, what was that take that you well, wanted? Well, the whodunit has a really specific structure. You know, you have kind of a powerful person that gets murdered, and then usually there's a contained area, whether it's a mansion or they're all on an island somewhere or something. Right, no one can escape. Really. No one can get away. And then there's kind of like a group of colorful suspects who are all connected in some way. And then you have an eccentric detective who goes about solving the case. And that's what we got here. And the yeah, other... Daniel Craig plays the eccentric detective. He, he does. And he, if you only know Daniel Craig from playing James Bond, <laughs> this is something completely different. He's having a lot of fun in this role. It's, it's, a, it's a real blast to watch. Who is that guy? Uh, Mr. Blanc is a private investigator of great renown. I read a tweet about a New Yorker article about you. You're famous. So he plays Detective Benoit Blanc. Benoit Blanc. I love that line. I read a tweet about a New York article. About <laughs> That's Tony Collette delivering yeah. that line. She plays kind of like a, an Instagram influencer in the movie. She's quite funny. <laughs> Daniel Craig is an unusual choice. It's funny, again, because most people know him from playing the very stern, serious character of James Bond. I had met him a few times over the years. He is the opposite of that in real life. He is a fun dude. And he's also an incredible actor with tremendous range. And so I think he really relished the idea of doing something completely different here. He's having so much fun. And I think you can, that's one of the fun things about the movie. You can really tell how much fun everybody, Daniel especially, is having on screen. Just back to Agatha Christie for a moment. She wrote Ten Little Indians, which I think was also titled... um, God, and then there were none. And then there were none. Yeah. Right, which yeah, is sort yeah, of yeah. set in the classic mansion. And... I think that might be her best book. It's a kind of non-traditional. As a, it doesn't quite have the structure of a real traditional locked door mystery. It's a little more like a horror movie in oh, a way, but okay. it is a fantastic book. But yeah, that, she was great at characters. That's That Christie was such a good writer of characters. She drew all these kind of caricatures of British life at the time. And, and the idea with this was to kind of do that with America in 2019. Yeah, how did you go about that? I mean, it's a lot of work, first of all, to give everyone motivation, everyone a backstory, everyone good lines. Well, it's part of the fun of it, too, though, for me. I mean, and it's uh, especially when you get a group of actors together like this, you want to give them each something fun to do. So 
the whole idea was, okay, if we're going to set this in 2019, we're not going to just do like the modern version of Colonel Mustard and Professor Plum. <laughs> we're going to have each of these character types really be people that could only exist today. I mean, so you have a, a, a kid who's kind of an internet troll and you have, you know, a daughter who's very, very aggressively socially progressive. And like, there's all these different character types from today. I tried to create a broad spectrum of of, you know, 2019 types. You talked about a critical aspect of whodunit being that isolation. Everyone's, you know, in a house, on an island. And yet, uh, in modern life, we're very rarely isolated because of our phones, because of Wi-Fi. Mm. How does that change the dynamic? You know what's odd? In, in the case of a whodunit, it didn't. There was never a point in the script where I was even tempted to solve a plot point by having someone not be able to get cell service. <laughs> it, didn't, oh. it didn't need to happen. Oh. So uh, I think because it's all really about the family being drawn together by this event, which mm-hmm. is the death of their grandfather, or their father, basically, the, the patriarch. And so more often than not, everyone's in the same room together. And that's kind of fun and refreshing, just a oh, dysfunctional family going at each other in, in a way that hopefully is entertaining. We'll try not to give too much away, but I, I, I want to talk about the big plot twist. <laughs> we, 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 right. You're thinking, how are we going to do this? But it, it hits it 30 minutes in. Yeah, we throw kind of a curveball at the audience. I'm not going to say what it is, but that's what part of what Agatha Christie did back in the day. You know, in a way, you might watch this movie and say, oh, this is very non-traditional in the way it kind of flips things on its head in terms of the plot. But Agatha Christie, if you read her books, every single book she was figuring out ways to flip the formula on its head and oh. try and try and wake the audience's senses up and try and give them an actual challenge so that they're kind of you're leaning forward thinking what what's gonna happen next instead of just saying, Oh, I know what's gonna happen. I know this formula. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So do you start with the mystery solved and work your way back as you're writing this? Yeah, I, I, I write very structurally. So I need to be able to see the shape of the whole thing in my head before I start writing. So I begin just not even with the plot, but just with the general story shape. I say, okay, it starts kind of as a whodunit and then this happens. So but this when you started that this is a whodunit, did yeah. you already know who did it? Well, I, I knew... Well, no, I knew kind of like how they did it. And so, and then I was like, okay, so if this is the relationship of the characters, it means this type of person will be the killer and this type of person will be the victim. And this, and I start filling in the blanks, but I start even more broadly than I really start with the foundation of the house. And then I start figuring out where to put the rooms. The house. That must have been fun to search for what what house would play the house? Was yeah. that, is that like casting? It is very much like casting, especially with this movie. I mean, the whole thing is set basically in this one mansion, the family home, and we needed to find the murder mystery mansion of the mind. And we found this amazing house in Massachusetts and went to Massachusetts to film there. And we just basically shot most of the movie in this one incredible house. You mentioned murder mystery did you ever do those as a kid? Did you ever do oh, like yeah. a murder mystery theater? Yeah. Well, I tried, um, this is when I was, God, in junior high, I guess. I tried to make a murder mystery party for my friends. And it was kind of a disaster because I tried to do it single-handedly. So I was like, I wanted to do the thing where at a certain dramatic point, all the lights turned off in the house. Uh-huh. Because it was just me, I had to like say, okay, excuse me. And I had to run down the basement and try and do all the breakers. <laughs> and then I couldn't get them back on. It kind of didn't work. So, So I'm making amends, I think, with this movie. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And my guest is director, producer, 
writer Ryan Johnson. His latest is called Knives Out, which opened the Denver Film Festival. You also received the festival's highest honor, the John Cassavetes Award. Previous winners include Steven Soderbergh, Bill Pullman, William H. Macy, Elliot Gould. How does it feel to have your work screen here and win this accolade in the city you used to call home? Well, I mean, just to be screening here, just to be showing the movie here for me is incredibly special. I mean, I, I was a kid here. I was here up through sixth grade. I went to Dry Creek Elementary and lived in Inglewood. But I still have a, I have a huge family that I'm really close to, and a lot of them still live in Denver. And so I'm out here quite often seeing them. And they all came to the screening, and it was just my grandparents were there. Um, it was so much fun. And, and so and and to receive that award, I mean, that's I mean, I I definitely I don't feel like I've earned it. But it was an incredibly generous gesture by the film festival. You don't feel like you earned it. Tell me well, more you're about talking, that. Well, you talk. You list those names. Who have gotten it previously? <laughs> I feel like give me another ten years, I might get, I might get to the level of any of those people. But those are some of my heroes, you know. So, how, how old are you, Ryan? I'm Forty-five. Okay. Yeah. Wow, you look really young. God do, bless you. Do people say that? <laughs> I gonna, you're gonna say you can say it as often as you like. <laughs> Where do you want your career to head? I mean, it's interesting because you you've been the sort of blockbuster director. You've also gotten to try on a very different hat with Knives Out. Hmm. Who do you see yourself being in 10 years? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, re- I really just, I mean, for me, you know, I had a fantastic experience making a Star Wars movie. I mean, it was a huge production, but it still felt very personal and, and very, uh, yeah, still it still felt like the same type of like intimate creative process as any of my other movies. And so, that, that I find remarkable. Yeah, most people, I think it's hard to communicate um, just because from the outside it looks like such a machine. But it's, at, the, at the heart of it, it's really not. I mean, there's a lot of machinery to move these very big pieces. But the heart of it is still just, you know, a small group that's collaborating and really trying to make it come from their heart and tell a story and make it work and make the best movie they can. And and the truth is the real work of it that matters is still just the essential creative work that's the same in any movie. It's the frame. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Did you make movies or try to in some kind of low-rent way when you were living in Colorado? Oh, my God, yeah. So my dad, he like he loved gadgets, and so he got one of the very first video cameras. This was a VHS video camera. It wasn't a camcorder. You had to like plug the camera into a VCR and carry the VCR around with you. Which, carrying the deck around. The actual deck. You had to put like a car battery into it, basically. <laughs> and it was, it was a little kid. It was half my size. I was waddling around with this thing. But yeah, I started making movies as soon as my dad brought that home and I just kept going all through junior high and high school. What were these early movies about? Well, they were mostly just parodies. They were mostly like, oh, let's make a James Bond movie. We'll call him James Blonde and have it, you know, and so, uh, but the very first thing I did when they, when I picked up the camera for the very first time, it had like a handle on top. And I remember holding it down at floor level and running with it in between the space between our coffee table and couch. And I played it back and I was like, yep, that looks exactly like the trench run in Star Wars. And it was like, oh, that's how they did it. Nice. <laughs> I also love that you had an early James Bond send-up character, and later you would work with the current James Bond. Full circle, baby. Mm -hmm. Full circle. Could you edit back in those days? No. Well, you had to edit in camera. 
So anyone who was doing it back then, you just, you know, you do your shot and you stop at exactly the right point and then three, two, one, go. And you start at the next point. And I think that taught me editing, you know, that because you couldn't just like get a bunch of stuff and figure it out later. You, you couldn't to... take an image from 20 minutes further into the tape and bring it back five minutes. You, you were sort of editing as you went. You had to know the shots you were getting. You had to know how they connected and you had to know how they told the story. And I think that was actually really, really useful in terms of at a very early age, teaching me basically how to edit. Did your parents encourage you to pursue this as a career or did they think, oh, this is a cute hobby or like this is his version of wanting to be a fireman? No, my dad was in the home building business. He wasn't in the movie business at all. And um, same with my with my grandparents, same with all of my family. And they were all movie buffs, though. My grandfather would show me, you know, Fellini movies. My dad, who passed away a few years ago, he would show me Raging Bull and Scorsese films. So they took this seriously. They took this really seriously, and they were so supportive. And um, my, my dad is uh, the reason I love movies. I think there was a part of him that always wished that he could be doing this, you know, too. And uh, to get to kind of share the experience of making the movies with him... That, that was really, really special. So he got to see some of your success, no doubt. He did, up through Looper. He passed away just before I got offered the Star Wars job. Yeah. Do you think that there could be a sequel to Knives Out? Well, I'll tell you, I had so much fun making this with Daniel, and Daniel had so much fun. If, if this movie does all right, if we can get together every few years and make a new Benoit Blanc oh. mystery, I would be thrilled, man. That would be so much fun. This would be your Agatha Christie. There you go, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that would be a blast. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Thanks, Ryan. I appreciate it. Writer and director Ryan Johnson grew up in Denver. His new film, Knives Out, hits theaters nationwide on Wednesday. He spoke with my colleague Ryan Warner. Thanks for joining us. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 